were shaped by crack dealers doing evil things. We have murders two blocks away from the White House. That's Alpo Martinez, 80s street legend, speaking from prison to Feds magazine years ago. When we killed this big drug dealer in D.C., it was such a big deal. That was such a big thing. This female started running her mouth about a situation that she didn't really know nothing about. And my man got so upset at that. That he just said, you know what, she gotta go. She talking too much. But they were a major influence on hip hop because in America, we love gangsters. There's something quintessentially American about the glorification of gangster. My name is Nelson George, and I was the executive producer of American Gangster on BET. There's something about us as a nation that we, we have our official values and then we have our real values. Our official values include chastising drug dealers. But our real values include lionizing the... We know they're evil. We know they're hurting the community. We know they're murdering people and ruining lives. But at the same time, many of us are in awe of their outlaw status, their success at evading the law, their propensity for violence, their power in the shadowy underworld. The leaders of the underworld have had a huge impact on hip-hop, and on Black America. This is Being Black, the 80s. I'm Torre, and this is a look at an epic decade through the lens of some of the great songs of the era. Not necessarily the best songs, but the songs that speak best to the issues that shaped the 80s. This time, we're diving into N.W.A.'s Dope Man and the drug dealer's influence on Black America in the 80s. That insane synth line from N.W.A.'s 1987 song, Dope Man, always makes me lose my mind. That's some scrunch-up-your-face type funk right there. Dr. Dre produced that beat. He interpolated that synth line from the Ohio Players song, Funky Worm. And when I close my eyes and hear that line... I see that line curving in the air like the letter S, like smoke wafting up and out from a crack pipe. And the beat. The beat is thumping hard as hell like a crackhead's heart after taking a big hit. At least that's how I hear it. Royce to 5'9 hears it like this. I was thinking of, like, the defibrillator mm-hmm. on this flatlining. And it goes straight. You know what I'm saying? Whoa. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how, I, that's how I, it hit me. A defibrillator. Yes. Like, the patient is dying, like, from a crack overdose before the song even starts. And after Dr. Dre's amazing buildup, here comes Ice Cube playing the part of the drug-slinging dope man who's roaring at the world. Cube's drug dealer is furious, ruthless, remorseless, and angry. You can feel the rage gushing out of him. The sort of rage 
that seems common in crack dealers and makes people afraid of them. Biba Adams is from Detroit. She's an editor at The Grio, and she did a deep study on drug dealer culture in college. I think these are angry young men. These are angry people who are, you know, growing up under under tough circumstances. There's not opportunity out there for them. Then this this comes along, and it, it was even more anger because you have to have that anger as your shield. You have to be angry to be able to even pull a trigger you know, at another human being. And so I think that the anger really was a protective thing. Anger is a great motivator as well. When you can say I'm I'm angry at the country for keeping me from opportunity. I'm angry at this, I'm angry at that. It can be a really good excuse to do bad things. Dope Man is powered by the anger of young black LA. People who grew up in streets that prepared them for battle. I flew to L.A. and it was just like Vietnam. That's the legendary rapper, the D.O.C. I had this D.O.C., six-member some say of N.W.A. He said Compton in the 80s at night was scary. I think the young guys in Los Angeles, they were raised for war. Those guys were raised for combat. So they didn't have any other goal in mind but just abide by any means necessary. You're not going to survive in South Central unless you are battle-tested and battle-ready. Wasn't made for serious thinkers to come outside and pontificate on how life is supposed to be. You better bring some motherfucking good play or something if you're going to be outside. You know, you're raised to fight. You know, you're raised to be us on this street against them motherfuckers on that street. That's the vibe of Dope Man. Cube's talking about a young man who's got an Uzi and a temper, and he's angry at everything, including his customers. One of the song's biggest ideas is that the crack dealer hates his customers. A good capitalist is supposed to love his customers. They're the ones making him rich. But crack dealers had a whole different relationship with the fiends. So that attitude, as far as if you're not going to care about yourself, I'm damn sure not going to care about you. So that also permeated within, you know, the atmosphere of drug dealers. That's my man, Samson. My name is Samson Styles. So you was looked down upon if you use drugs. Even though I'm making money from you, you still look down upon from using. Samson was in the streets for years. I grew up in the streets. Once the crack game came into um, existence, I got heavy into that. I went from selling crack to robbing crack dealers, going back to um, selling crack again. I hustled in North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio. People that's from the streets, they know me. You know, I did seven years in prison. I've been shot five times. Everything that the street had to offer, I participated and now I overcame and became a broadcast award-winning journalist and changed my life around. Samson and others said Cube's sense of disdain for the crackheads was widespread among dealers, and it came from the fact that crackheads seem to care nothing for themselves. How can you respect someone who doesn't have self-respect? This is Nelson George. The crackhead was looked down upon and vilified and made fun of. It was a very derogatory way of viewing the customer. You know, in theory, the coke 
user was the someone who had money and was more refined. There's a big difference between a Coke dealer from the 70s and um, a uh, crack dealer. I can speak to this because my father sold cocaine for a long time in Harlem. He said, he used to say his clientele were the kings and queens and heads of state. And that is cocaine was an expensive drug to, to use, whereas Crack, okay, so if, if Coke is like a fine sirloin steak, crack is McDonald's. So the relationship with the customer is that of a mass market product. Get them in, get them out. In the 80s, the economic structure of black America led to a handful of crack dealers, most of them young men, holding a massive percentage of the wealth in the community. Ice Cube says he's much dollars on the first of 15th. Meaning whenever the welfare checks roll in, the money flows to him. It's almost like the community was playing a game of Monopoly where the crack dealers had Broadway and Park Place and they had hotels on them and no one else had any property. So their bankroll was gigantic and everyone else's was small. It felt like money was falling out of the sky. I'm Kevin Childs. Currently, I'm CEO of Don Diva Magazine and I'm also the author of The Crack Era. It's called The Rise, The Fall, and The Redemption of Kevin Childs. I spent a little bit of time incarcerated uh, for running what's considered a it's called a CCE, a Continual Criminal Enterprise, which is considered me to be a kingpin. Kevin made a ton of money in the streets. And the money came really fast. I was probably 19, 20 years old when I seen my first million dollars. A year or two before that, I didn't know where my meals was coming from. And now here I am, can travel the world, I can buy pretty much anything I want. When the drug dealers held a gigantic share of the community's wealth, they had an outsized say in what happened in the community in what businesses or institutions started or continued, and which ones didn't. For example, the entire existence of NWA flows out of Eazy-E making money in the drug game and investing it into the launch of NWA and his label, Ruthless Records. The story goes that it was all Eazy's money, and that's pretty much the truth. And uh, Eazy, Eazy got his his money by any means necessary. <laughs> the song Dope Man may not have ever existed without drug money. I mean, as raw and real as hip-hop was, N.W.A. stood out for how honest and aggressive they were about life on the street and the feelings of the hood. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. They probably would have scared a lot of labels away, or at least had labels rejecting their most honest, raw stuff. There was a song when my 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 debut called Bridget, and it was the one song that was in the tradition of those guys, those guys' music. And Atlantic made me take that shit right off. You know, it was like, nah, that's that doesn't really work for us. That goes back to to your point about the freedom to put out what you want to put out. It's my opinion that NWA could put out. You know, songs like Fuck the Police are really only because they had that that money, Easy's money behind when they were doing independent music. And you didn't have the, the confines of the machine telling you what you could and couldn't say. They had enough money to run their own label. So they were able to get on the mic and say whatever they wanted. A lot of the hip hop industry was aided and abetted by drug money. This is Royce the Five Nine. I remember just hearing distinctive stories about like Alpo, like investing money into like stuff related to like labels, bad boy. Kevin Child said the same thing. You know, I had more of a, an association with Rockefeller. On the great podcast, Louder Than a Riot, Too Short said. Crack had a lot to do with why Too Short succeeded because the crack money 
financed basically hip-hop nationwide before I signed the Jive Records. Everything I ever did was funded by cocaine. Everything. I can't go to Bank of America. I couldn't walk into Wells Fargo and say, all I need is five grand to start the company. It was 50 banks that I knew of in Oakland. 50 different dudes that I knew that had the bag that might be interested in taking a small a small piece of their earnings and helping me start too short. The drug money just offered the guys at the bottom the opportunity to get in on the ground floor. I really believed it was a blessing because uh, just for that very reason. For that, without that, you don't have a lot of young entrepreneurs uh, building themselves something and, and having an action at billions of dollars. A lot of hip-hop artists got help from crack dealers. Even in SSL El Cuche, there was times that people would wear our jewelry or use our cars as props in the video. This is early on in his career. It's just not them. It's a bunch of rappers. They knew us. And when they went to do a video, they would borrow our cars, our jewelry. You know, we, we would, like I said, dress them up. And many artists got direction from crack dealers. Every rapper should be thankful for the hustlers that came up before them. That's the rapper Jim Jones from Dipset. The 80s lifestyle and the 90s lifestyle is something that we still emulating and glorifying today. When we came outside, we wanted to be just like the dudes we seen on the corner with the newest sneakers and the jewelry on, with the prettiest girls and all the fly cars. We didn't know about anything else but what we saw. We didn't know the circumstances. We didn't know if it was bad, if it was good. We just knew we wanted that. They wanted to be fly like that. All the musicians wanted to be like the drug dealers and starting from back as far as I can remember from like LL Cool J and things like that. Like he wanted, he had one of the hustlers from my project, Big Dave, who probably was one of the richest dudes to come out of Harlem, had his car on the cover of one of his albums and things like that. So Big drug dealers who had more money than they knew what to do with often helped people by giving them money so they could be athletes or launch businesses. Nelson George saw that. There were a lot of video stores, barbershops, beauty salons that were had drug money funded into it. Candy stores, rim shops, stuff like that. Kevin Childs lived that. So there was kids who played basketball and went off to college that we helped to finance that. We sponsored trips all the time for whatever it was. Actually, I, in the earlier days of the Rucker, I financed the Rucker. That's infamous today. I was instrumental in that. Like, I, I mean, for years at a time, I actually paid to pay for the referees, to pay for the trophies whenever they fell short a certain kind of way. So there's a lot of things like that that we did that was behind the scenes, but we didn't do it for the, for the gratification of somebody saying that we did it. We did it because you know, it was our community. We understood what certain people were doing and we assisted them, hoping that in some kind of way, you know, it would reciprocate itself somewhere down the road. I know that the community that, that I helped destroy, there was a, a mindset of mine that I figured I would offset by giving back equally. But deeper than providing money itself, for some people, the crack dealers provided the inspiration to be entrepreneurial. Samson Styles talked about that. We won't waste talk coming up then to be your own boss. Even if he was working for someone temporarily, the big dream is to get your own connect, to get your own product, to have your own workers, to have your own block, to have your own stuff going on. And that transformed, you know, into legal businesses as well. And a lot of the drug dealers back then, you'll see them with a cab stand or a grocery store or a pool hall, bar, and this 
kind of inspired, you know, the youth coming up. They wanted their own stuff. Even if they didn't want the drugs, they might have wanted their bar. They wanted to have a pool hall. They wanted to have a cab stand. So it kind of pushed that entrepreneur spirit. Before that, I remember coming up and with my mother basically saying, you know, go to school so you could get a good job. It was basically go to school so you could get a good job and work for someone and kind of be miserable. I see my father miserable working for someone. The government, and he was a dental technician and they always was angry. So I think the drug dealers of the 80s, they definitely impacted the entrepreneurial spirit that exists within the black community today. Kevin Childs remembers when Diddy, who used to be called Puffy or Puff, was young, like before he started Bad Boy, and how the energy and the example of Harlem dealers inspired him. Puff, at the time, when he was just starting, he uh, would, would hang out in Harlem quite a bit, you know, so he but basically garnered a certain degree of credibility for hanging with the guys uptown, you know, and seeing almost what we were doing in the street as far as marketing our products, he sort of took that concept, and, you know, just used it in music business. A lot of hip-hop's entrepreneurial spirit flows from the example of the crack dealer. But, um, you know, the people like the Jay-Z's and the Dame Dashes and, you know, the Master P's, the, the Two Shorts, they all were inspired by, these, by the crack epidemic. To say nothing of how hip-hop went from rappers in the mid-'80s saying, I see drug dealers, to rappers in the late-'80s and 90s saying, I am a drug dealer or I was a drug dealer. At one point, it was almost like a necessary part of an MC's resume to be able to say he's been a drug dealer. Niggas went from getting on the mic and calling out evil to saying, I am the monster. I am the one who knocks. I don't think hip hop culture. That's Biba Adams. I don't think the hip hop generation, I don't think the hip hop industry as, a, as an economic industry and a huge driver of black economic success, which is doesn't get its props for. I don't think it would exist without the crack epidemic. I know 100%. I knew a drug dealer that was a woman. Her name was Pig. I remember that that was her nickname. And she had a Mustang 5.0. You had to have a 5.0, especially here in Detroit. And, you know, seeing her with Big Knot, it didn't make me want to sell drugs. But there was something about her that I admired. I admired that she was fresh. I admired that her hair was done. I admired that she had a nice car, that she had all this swag, and that she was doing her own thing. And especially that she was doing it in a male industry. And I've never, I mean, I, I haven't forgotten Pig to this day. And I probably, that was, I, was, I had to be like 13, 14 years old. I definitely think that seeing success, it created in me personally the idea that I could try anything. I could do almost anything. I, you know, that anything was possible if, if you put your mind to it and you put your grind to it and, you know, you hustle. So I still live with that spirit in, in me. Now, a word from our sponsors. It's the Ten Crack Commandments. Wow. In 1997, a decade after N.W.A.'s Dope Man, Biggie dropped Ten Crack Commandments, laying down the laws of the crack game. Nothing about the game had changed since Cube's day. Ten Crack Commandments could have dropped in 87, except for one thing. The song's perspective is an example of how hip-hop's response to crack had changed. Where Ice Cube was talking about someone else, Biggie was saying he himself was a dealer. He is the monster. And so his song reveals part of how 80s crack dealers felt. It helps us understand 
part of why Cube's character in Dope Man was so angry. To me, the number one thing that stands out when I go through Big's commandments is this. Over and over, Big is saying, you can't trust anyone. That's the majority of the lessons on the song, You Can't Trust Your Hood. Never let no one know how much dough you hold. You can't trust your crew. Them cats that squeeze your guns can hold jumps too. Don't talk to cops. If niggas think you're snitching, they ain't trying to listen. In law number three, he comes right out and says it. Number three, never trust nobody. Your mom's have set that ass up, properly gassed up. Hoodie the masked up. For that fast buck, she be laying in the bushes to light that ass up. You can't even trust moms? Damn. Big's exaggerating for comedic purposes here. I've met his mom. She's a saint. But she did inadvertently mess with his crack this one time. His man D-Rock was on my other podcast, Torre Show, and he told me the story. We um actually finished cooking, you know what I mean? And uh, we set, you know, set it on the windowsill to dry in his room. He had like, a, you know, the windows, that window with the fire escape. So we set it there. I think we maybe went downstairs. Definitely no smoking in the house. Forget that. You know what I mean? So we went downstairs to smoke. And then um, we came back up. As soon as he opened the door, she was like right at the door and was like, hey, yo, how many times I got to tell you about leaving these dish, this dishes in your room? You know, but uh, he that night put them in the sink. So we, we he looked at me. Uh, but he's like, what dishes? She's like, the dish you left on the windowsill with the hard mashed potatoes. We was like, he's like, all right, Mike, try to like brush by real quick to like get to the kitchen. You couldn't say no. He's like, all right, Mike, all right, all right, all right. So we went to the kitchen. We're, we was hoping that she didn't put it in the actual sink. The good thing is she scraped it in the garbage first and then washed the plate. So, you know, he was like, all right, I'll grab the garbage. Like, we was digging through that garbage like homeless people. We had, like, barbecue sauce, everything on it. <laughs> Yo, I'm telling you. And, and it's still wet. But that's not what Big's talking about in this song. Drug dealers got a lot of money, and they can't call the police. So they're a target, and a lot of people are constantly thinking about robbing them. So they had to be distrustful of everyone, including family. A marijuana dealer I know once told me that his blood brother had just taken $250,000 that he had in a safe. And it gets way worse than that. Samson knows all about that. It was people that was kidnapping members of their own family for money and stuff. Like it brought out the ugliness in, in, in a lot of people. So you had to just be on guard at all times. Here's Nelson George again. I look at all of those crack era narratives. It's a paranoid lifestyle. You're doing something that's patently illegal that involves large sums of cash and that there's always a threat of violence in terms of you being robbed as a dealer, you being betrayed to the police, you even, even in dealing with whoever you wholesale or retail your drugs from, there's always a chance you're getting beat on the deal. I mean, that's one of the things I really think about. In fact, the whole crack era, quite honestly, was a sense of paranoia. In the 80s, the war on drugs put one in three young black men in the grip of the criminal justice system at some level. So there were a lot of people in the hood who were incentivized to tell the police things in order to help themselves. Sometimes they told the police the truth. Sometimes they lied. So everyone had to be paranoid about who they were talking to and who they were seen talking to. What does it do to a community when so many people are afraid of so many people in the community? In the Ten Crack Commandments, Big is far from angry. He's cool, he's laid back. Really, he seems detached. 
which is representative of how the crack era brought about a sense of desensitization. The homicide rate went through the roof during the crack era. Between the late 80s and the early 90s, the murder rate in America was higher than it's ever been. So many people got used to seeing dead bodies and mourning people, and many of us grew cold. It happened to Samson. I think the death that happened during the crack era, man, it, it desensitized uh, majority of people. Majority of people coming up at that time, they know someone or, or witness someone getting killed, getting murdered. I could count over 100 people that I know personally that passed away, that got murdered, you know, and I can't count how many I've seen with my own eyes. Happened to Kevin Childs. You know, you could be at a barbershop and somebody could have lost their life. And it's just literally barbershop conversation. This is a casual conversation. You can know someone who was sentenced to 20, 30 years and, and you just, it just rolls off your mouth like, hey, you know, so-and-so just got 30 years. It's just, a we just normalized a certain behavior. I think a lot of us live with a lot of trauma, unresolved trauma. The trauma caused by the widespread murder and the ubiquitous fear of murder led to a lot of people becoming very unemotional. You couldn't be like no soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug dealer. You just couldn't, right? You had to suppress that. You know, if something made you laugh, you couldn't laugh in public, really. You know, you had to just like, <laughs> and hold the rest of that in, you know, because people would look at you as, that's a weakness. Your favorite song would come on in the club and you couldn't dance, really. You just bop your head and, and you know, because you got your Jeremy on, you don't want nobody to try you. You got business in the streets going on. You got women that you've seen that you don't want them to think that they could try to set you up to get robbed because you, they have to know that there's some big consequences. So it, it robbed you of your soul and then it created this, this image that really, it was a false image because people held, they contained their true feeling, right? So, you know, being hard, being hardened at that time, that's what was also glorified. You know, not laughing or, oh, he's serious. That impulse to be unemotional traveled throughout the generation, far beyond the crack dealers. I mean, so many black male role models were unemotional, were dead serious. And that's what we thought being a man was. And that stunted the emotional development of a whole generation of black men. It happened to me. It happened to Royce to Five Nine. It had an effect on me, for sure. I mean, what it is, it's, it's just suppressing feelings. So after you suppress them for so long, I know, speaking to me, I suppressed them for so long that it just became like a, like a reaction, just like a go-to. It's like a trigger. So I got to a point where nothing, I felt like nothing bothered me. And by the time I got to my grandma's funeral in, um, in 97, I remember sitting there and, and I couldn't cry. I was looking at everybody else crying and I was thinking to myself, I, I want to cry. Why am I not crying? I know I look crazy. How come everybody else is crying and I'm not crying? And I was trying to find it and I couldn't find it. You know what I mean? It was like, I don't know if I was numb or if I just tucked it away so many times that I lost the ability to be able to feel in that way. And it never goes anywhere. You're just taking it and you're putting it somewhere, but it comes back in many ways. You know what I mean? Mine came back in the form of alcoholism and all kinds of just trauma. Both Biggie and Easy e died far too young. Big was murdered on the streets. Easy died of AIDS. Their deaths are part of the trauma we all dealt with. Hip-hop culture has been through a lot of death, both iconic figures and civilians who were part of the culture. All that death has caused that trauma that we're talking about and led to 
people's souls being paralyzed, their emotions being frozen, and also to a lot of squandered humanity. Biggie and Easy, as well as Tupac and many others who died or got locked away in prison, are emblematic of the thousands and thousands and thousands of young black lives lost. This is Nelson George. There's an entire generation of really potentially brilliant people, a really interesting or innovative people who, who just died stupidly and young. Biggie and Tupac to me are metaphors more than everyone talks about them, but they are metaphors for scores and scores of people who didn't make it past 25. That's just a loss that we'll never calculate of how much potential, human potential was squandered in acts of violence. So the loss of, of smart, creative talent was just, it's just immense. And it was over a corner, a corner that's now probably has, has a red graphic beyond on it. Being black in the 80s is quite often about tragedy and heartbreak. The crack trade and the war on drugs put millions in prison or in the cemetery or in the grip of addiction that damaged their lives. But being black in the 80s is also about us taking steps forward. It's a complicated period. It's also about the rise of hip hop and the industry around it that created millionaires and solid jobs and a culture that would take over the world. It's also about finally winning the long, hard battle to create a holiday for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's why Stevie Wonder's song, Happy Birthday, is the subject of our next episode of Being Black in the 80s. I'm Torre, and this was Being Black, the 80s. The next episode of this show is already available, and soon we'll be back with Being Black, the 70s. This podcast was produced by me, Torre, and Jesse Cannon, and scored by Will Brooks, with additional production by Brian Demiglio, and executive production from Regina Griffin. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Griot Black Podcast Network. Please tell a friend and check out the other shows on the Griot Black Podcast Network, including Blackest Questions with Chrissy Greer, Dear Culture with Panama Jackson, The Griot Daily with Michael Harriet, and Writing Black with Maisha Kai. 